If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Take something iconic like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA. Used under license by FCA US LLC. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. In the East. Quite often you get armies getting lost. I mean, they lost themselves, bits of themselves, and they also lost the enemy. They had no idea where each other were. They were marching around these huge wastelands of Poland and East Prussia, really just looking looking to see where's the enemy. That was Max Hastings describing the early months of the First World War. I do believe that Richard has been maligned, and I do believe his reputation has been pretty much dragged through the mire for 500 years. And that was Philippa Langley on the discovery of Richard III's remains. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. See historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for subscription deals. And we also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. And for details of all of those, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. So Max Hastings is a journalist and broadcaster, as well as one of Britain's most successful military historians. For his latest book, he has turned his attention to the crucial year of 1914, exploring the origins of the First World War and the early clashes following the outbreak of the conflict. 
Max has written a piece in our November issue about the rights and wrongs of Britain's involvement in the war. And I visited him in his London home a few weeks ago to find out more. I began by asking him why, after writing several volumes on the Second World War, he'd now turned his attention to the first. I felt that for the time being I'd said as much as I wanted to about World War II and any half-decent writer always tries to write about things where he feels he's got something new to bring to the party and I couldn't at that minute think of anything very new I wanted to say about mm. the Second World War or having written eight books about it and I've always been fascinated by what happened in 1914. Uh, if one could put it this way, Churchill wrote after the war that no part of the, after the First World War, that no part of the drama of 1914 to 18 exceeded that of its opening phases with these vast armies um, moving towards a collision uh, in both Eastern and Western Europe. And there were all sorts of things I wanted to find out about the First World War, and part of the joy of being an author is that you get the chance to satisfy your own curiosity, you get the chance to find out all sorts of things. And most people's ideas about the First World War, if you say to even quite well-informed mm. and educated people, what do you think of when you think of the First World War? They think of trenches, barbed wire, steel helmets, gas, poets, machine yeah. guns. Well, except for the machine guns, the first months of the war weren't at all like that. They were more like the wars of the 19th century. That all over Europe, millions of men marched towards collisions on battlefields. In the case of the French army, dressed in red trousers and um, blue overcoats, uh, led by officers wearing white gloves and waving swords and mounted on chargers and with bands playing as they advanced into battle. Absolutely incredible picture. And what was so different? Later on, from September onwards, the armies burrowed into the earth as they became stalemated on both the eastern and western front. But in those first months, you could see everything that at one of the first British battles at Lakato on the 26th of August, that if you'd stood on the high ground about two miles uh, west of, uh, sorry, north of Lakato, you would have seen um, all the key points of the battlefield in front of you. You would have seen um, sites that Wellington at Waterloo would have recognised as familiar. You would have seen um, batteries of horse artillery um, galloping forward to unlimber and opening fire on the enemy in full view. You'd have seen gallopers marching carrying orders because they didn't have many telephones, because there were no radios. Um, the whole spectacle was that of a 19th century battle, but with this terrifying difference that there were 20th century weapons, that there you had machine guns, coffee grinders, as the French called them, that terrible sound of that steady rattle, rattle, rattle of machine guns, with, of course, devastating effects, not just on men, but on horses. The casualties among horses were horrendous in those early battles, when, as I say, everybody could see everything, and, of course, when cavalry was sometimes crazy enough to try and charge. Um, all these things, those sort of images, as I travel around Europe looking at the battlefields and, and imagining in my mind's eye what Lakato, Mons, um, the Marne and so on looked like. And it was all very different, totally different from what one could call the poet's view of the sort of 1916 to 18 business. And so, as with all the books I write, I started off by sort of making myself a list of the questions that I as a, as a reader would want to have answered. First of all, how did the war come about? Um, that, I mean, everybody sort of vaguely knows that uh, some Ruritanian bloke with a big moustache got himself shot at Sarajevo, but actually that wasn't really the cause of the war. The cause of the war was that Austria had made up its mind that it wanted to crush Serbia, which, and the Serbs had provided the weapons uh, for 
the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, but it was a pretty big deal on the strength of that to declare, for Austria to declare Serbia a rogue state and say we are going to wipe Serbia off the map. We're going to invade, we're going to crush it, and we're going to, um, we're going to break it up and it will never appear on the map again. And what was even more amazing was that Germany, on July the 6th, 1914, gave the Austrians what's now called by historians a blank check, saying to the Austrians, OK, you want to wade in, you want to smash Serbia, you want to break up Serbia, we will support you all the way, diplomatically and, if necessary, militarily. And if the Russians get involved, because the Russians regarded Serbia as under their protection, then we'll see off the Russians. Now, I don't believe, I'm not one of the conspiracy theorists who believes that the Germans wanted a big European war, but I think they were willing for one. They were willing to take that huge risk. Why? Because they thought that 1914 offered the best chance they were ever going to get if they had to fight the Entente, um, meaning France, Russia, and possibly Britain, um, especially if they had to fight Russia, who they regarded as the big enemy. They thought 1914 offered them the best chance of doing so. So they were willing to take that gamble because they thought in 1914 they could defeat first France and then Russia. Uh, whereas if they waited a few more years, they thought the Russians would be too strong, partly because the Russians were busy bu building railways. So the first question one tried to answer was how it all came about. And then one just tried to tell people what happened. I mean, most people have no idea that what happened in Serbia, these huge battles in um, uh, hundreds of thousands killed by Christmas, uh, as the Austrians uh, were initially um, absolutely thrashed by the Serbians in a whole succession of battles in August and September. Uh, the Austrians absolutely humiliated. And um, the battles on the Eastern Front in Poland, where huge armies, um, Russian armies and Austrian armies colliding, then the Germans getting involved, and the Germans defeating uh, the Russians at these big two battles of um, Tannenberg and the Missourian Lakes, that you're getting um, enormous armies. You're getting about, ooh, um, between 10 and 15 million men involved in these battles. Yeah. This is enormous stuff in those first months. Um, of course, the British Army in those days was tiny. That um, We always like to see the war in nationalistic terms, and so we think the war started with the retreat from Mons. Well, actually, of course, at that time, the British had not much more than 100,000 men on the field. And whereas, for example, the French had 1,100 uh, infantry battalions uh, in action in the summer of 1914, that the British had just 52 to start with. Now that grew afterwards, but in the first battles, that's the number they had. Even the Belgians had 120. And of course, the British Army was accustomed to fighting colonial wars that um, all its fighting, all right, it had fought the Boers who had modern rifles and so on, but most of its fighting had been with dervishes armed with spears and uh, fighting against Indian tribesmen. And it was an extraordinary experience for them. Uh, um, one officer wrote in his diary, I was noticing, when they first saw Ypres, he said, it feels so strange to be fighting in this sort of territory with sort of fields and houses. He said, we're all, we associate um, war with sort of hot countries and deserts yeah. and that sort of thing. And when... Uh, a guard sergeant major um, circled um, the wagons to provide a um, of his battalion to provide a, um, a defensive circle at night again uh, when they were retreating in front of the Germans. He called it um, a zariba, which was what they called it 
Azariba was the word Kitchener's army in the Sudan used to give it when they formed circles of thorns for the troops to uh, take shelter behind while they were shooting it up with the dervishes. So a lot of the men who were there, they'd fought with Kitchener and the Sudan in 1898 at On Demand. They'd, they'd fought in, at Mafeking and all those sort of battles and um, in Ladysmith and all those um, African battles. And now suddenly they find themselves fighting a European war. And most of them find it a very weird sensation uh, that uh, one British officer wrote in his diary, he said, um, he said, we were true mercenaries. He said, we'd be just as happy to fight the French. Talking about the British intervention into the war, was it, was it always going to happen that Britain would come into the war? Or was no, it wasn't, it wasn't inevitable. Minute? It wasn't inevitable at all that some people believe, uh, some historians today, that Britain could have remained neutral in 1914 and just watched um, the war, uh, watched the great powers slog it out on the continent and stayed rich and happy and stayed out of it. I don't believe that, I'm afraid. Um, in 1914, the British people, through what's called the July Crisis, as uh, all these dramas between France and Russia and Serbia and Austria and Germany were unfolding, most of the British people did not want to fight. They didn't like Russia because they saw it as a, as a tyranny ruled by the Tsar. It wasn't a democracy. Um, they certainly didn't like Serbia, which they thought was a nasty little country somewhere in the middle of the Balkans. And the idea of going to war for Serbia was crazy. Uh, but one thing changed everything. Yes, quite a number of members of the British cabinet, uh, including Winston Churchill, the first Lord of the Admiralty, and Edward Grey, the Foreign Secretary, and Richard Haldane, the Lord Chancellor, and to some extent Asquith, Herbert Asquith, the Prime Minister, they thought Britain would probably have to fight rather than see France crushed because they thought it was going to be too dangerous to have the whole continent ruled by Germany. And they were probably right. But most of the British people didn't want to be there. But then, the very end of July, um, you've got this amazing change. The Germans announce that on their march to crush France, they are going to march through Belgium. They're going to invade Belgium. Belgium was a neutral country, and Britain, by a 19th century treaty, was a guarantor of, of, of Belgian sanctity and neutrality. And the British people, when they heard that this huge German military juggernaut was just going to storm into Belgium, mm. for no better reason than it suited the convenience of the Schlieffen plan, they were appalled, they were outraged. And for the first time, all sorts of British people who are not want to have anything to do with this, they said, if this is how... Germany is going to behave, if Germany is going to crush ruthlessly and cold-bloodedly a small nation that's a neighbour of Britain, then we can't allow this to happen. We've got to come in. Now, whether they would have come in if they'd known how ghastly the consequences were going to be is, is a very interesting question. I mean, even Winston Churchill, Winston Churchill wrote to Lloyd George, the Chancellor Exchequer, saying the naval war will be cheap. He thought we might be able to play our part just with dreadnoughts, and this was incredibly naive. But I personally believe that even if it hadn't been for Belgium, I don't believe there could have been a happy outcome of Britain standing by and doing nothing, while Germany, as it almost certainly would have done, smashed France, smashed Russia, and then became the ruler of the continent. Um, I don't believe that the Germans then, because this was a militarized autocracy that was then, um, you know, it was mostly generals in jackboots, who were the most powerful force in Germany. Germany was not a democracy. Uh, and I do not believe the Germans would just have stood by and done nothing 
um, after winning a war on the continent, said the British, okay, you go on ruling the waves, you go on being uh, the biggest financial power in the world. I think the Germans would almost immediately have got very, very tough and nasty towards Britain. And I think we would have probably ended up, almost certainly ended up, having to fight Germany on our own instead of with allies. So um, although some people say today, oh, it was crazy to go into the war for Belgium, who cared about Belgium? It wasn't worth seeing Britain bankrupted, mm -hmm. seeing um, 800,000 men killed, uh, all for this. I just don't think we had a realistic alternative. I think that rather than see um, a militarised Germany uh, conquer the continent, I think we have to come in. So, of course, it was a catastrophe for Europe and for Britain, uh, the First World War. But I don't think it was futile. I don't think that um, it was for nothing. I think that um, if we'd left a victorious Germany to make the peace, it would have been a disaster. I mean, beginning of September 1914, when Germany thought it was on the brink of absolute victory, the German Chancellor, Bethmann Hollweg, he drew up a shopping list of all the things Germany wanted. Um, it was going to um, annex Belgium, it was going to um, uh, take over Luxembourg, it was going to take over a chunk of territory, uh, of Russian territory in the east, uh, it was going to take another chunk of French territory, it was going to create a military colony on the coast around Dunkirk, uh, land it was going to take from France. Uh, it was going to take all France's um, iron ore deposits and most of its coal. Germany's shopping list was an absolutely brutal, ruthless, imperialistic shopping list in which nobody, Bethmann Holweg made it plain, um, Germany is going to rule the continent. Um, and uh, it, it, when you see that shopping list, you think to yourself, could we really have just stood back and watched the Germans uh, take over the continent on this scale? Of course, there was a huge irony because Germany was, before the war, doing fantastically well economically and industrially. And the craziness is that if Germany had just gone on doing what it was doing already, and it had already overtaken Britain as a trading nation and as a uh, manufacturing nation, um, within a decade or two, Germany would have been absolutely in control of the continent, beyond the peradventure of doubt. But the Kaiser and the generals around him, they measured power by counting soldiers, and, and they were crazy enough to think that they could only achieve their way by military means. And actually, if they had just gone on uh, manufacturing in Germany, they would have got their way. Uh, you can't compare the Kaiser's Germany directly to Nazi Germany, because for a start, there was no Jewish genocide, a genocidal plan. But it was a pretty nasty, um, um, highly militarised place. And, and no, I don't think that a, um, a, a Europe ruled by that, the Kaiser's Germany, would have been a happy or comfortable place for anybody. Do you think either side had pro a prospect of victory in 1914? Was there any way the war could have been a short war? That was another bit of the craziness. One of the things that was wrong, a lot of nations in 1914, but especially Germany, mm -hmm. they still thought of war, not as we do, as the ultimate horror, to, to go to any lengths to avoid war. They thought of it as a perfectly reasonable instrument for advancing national policy. And they weren't nearly as scared as they should have been. They, they failed to realise, an awful lot of the men making decisions in 1914, that nothing they might hope to get out of a war could possibly justify the ghastly cost that was going to fall upon them. Uh, that, um, you know, that was one of their huge mistakes. 
And also the Germans thought that the Schlieffen plan, or what I prefer to call it the Schlieffen concept, because there never was an exact plan for smashing through Belgium and into France and, and coming right round behind the left flank of the French army uh, to achieve a victory in 40 or 50 days. I don't personally believe it could ever have worked. There are some historians who do, but the trouble was, you might have made it work in 1940. In fact, the Germans sort of did, because, uh, although it was a slightly different variation, because in 1940, the internal combustion engine had come of age, that then armies had the mobility, and especially the German army, to be able to make fast moves. But in 1914, the armies were having to advance um, at the speed of men's feet, a lot of those men were reservists who just come back from uh, been recalled to the army from uh, working in factories or in the fields or whatever. They weren't fit. They hadn't worn their boots for a long time. And also, of course, they were hugely dependent on horses. And very quickly, as the German army began this marathon march, men's feet began to crack up and so did horses. And horses were foundering in droves within a week or two. And... Um, in that age, the other problem was communication, that um, you didn't have, you had some radios, but they weren't very good radios. It took many hours for signals to, uh, to reach uh, commanders in the field from headquarters. And the technology of communications lagged miles behind. It was really pretty much the same communication as, as Wellington had or Napoleon at Waterloo. Um, on the battlefield, you sent, um, yeah, occasionally you used um, uh, um, staff officers in motor cars, but most orders were carried around by staff officers um, galloping across the field carrying a written message, just the same way they've been doing for hundreds of years. And to try and control armies of, of three or four million men um, by these means, it didn't work. And um, yes, the German army was by far the most effective army in Europe. It was an amazing army, it was, but it wasn't effective enough to achieve that complete victory unless the French had cracked up. And the French didn't crack up. And we like to think that we played the key role in 1914. Actually, when you look at the relative numbers and uh, that business, I say again, 1,100 French infantry battalions and just 52 British in those first campaigns. It was the French who, although they suffered terribly in those first battles, 27,000 men killed in one day, the uh, 23rd of August. Absolutely an, an extraordinary in a succession of battles, 27,000 dead. But somehow, even after all those terrible defeats in the first days, after this long retreat almost to Paris, the French army and its generals, they mustered um, the courage and the commitment to launch the great counter-offensive on the Marne and to drive um, the Germans back most of the way to the German border. And it was a, it was uh, an, an amazing achievement by the French. The French did very well, and we were really sort of spectators um, of that one. So that was going on in the Western Front. At this point, what was happening in the Eastern Front? The Eastern Front, the Russians moved very slowly to, or relatively slowly, towards mobilisation because they had these huge distances to cover. The, um, the, average, the average German soldier from um, his home to wherever he was supposed to be mobilising um, had to travel 200 miles. Mm -hmm. The average Russian soldier had to travel 800 miles. It was a huge distance. So it took the Russians a long time to get their act together. And also, the Russian army was institutionally pretty incompetent. That the two things they were good at, they had good artillery and good gunners, and their men had an extraordinary ability to endure and to survive. 
and they were they were able to achieve some victories over the Austrians because the Austrian Habsburg Empire's army was even more of a shambles. But against the Germans, the Germans absolutely took them apart at the Great Battle of Tannenberg at the end of uh, uh, towards the end of uh, August 1914 at Tannenberg, which is in East Prussia. The, the Russians had set about invading East Prussia, invading German territory, where because they knew the Germans were relatively weak. And the Russian army that marched into East Prussia outnumbered the Germans by about four or five to one. And they won a little victory quite quickly to start off with, which really made them think. And the Germans did have to retreat. The Germans took heavy losses. And the Russians really thought they were on the front foot. They really thought they were going to crack this. But then there were two Russian commanders there. There was Renenkamp, who won the victory on the 23rd of August. And then uh, his counterpart uh, uh, commanding the other army, Samsonov. He decided that they got the Germans on the run, and he went belting into East Prussia, way up, not even bothering to wait for Renenkauf, not bothering to wait for half his troops. He just thought he was going to chase the Germans all over East Prussia, and he went belting into East Prussia. And the Germans used their railways brilliantly, and it was all organised by some brilliant staff officers, but above all, Ludendorff was chief of staff of the German army by this time, and Ludendorff was one of the most effective German officers of that period. And although Hindenburg was notionally commanding the army, it was Ludendorff who did the real business. And they massed um, all the German troops almost in East Prussia. Um, and they met Samsonov, and although Samsonov outnumbered them, he just uh, presented um, the German army with a sort of banquet in successive courses, that he just marched his men, blonk, 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 towards the, towards the Germans bit by bit, and bit by bit, over three or four days, they were completely smashed and 90,000 prisoners taken, and um, the Russians driven back into East Prussia. Um, well, that was by no means the end. The Russian army was so enormous that that defeat wasn't the end of anything. And the whole thing went on for another three years on the Eastern Front. But it did mean that the immediate danger of a Russian steamroller, that was the phrase everybody used, the Russian steamroller, um, marching straight into Germany, that had been stopped dead that uh, it was now obviously going to be a very long slogging match. And the other thing about the Eastern Front, the distances were so huge that whereas on the Western Front, very quickly, you had almost continuous armies between mm. Switzerland and the sea. In the East, quite often you get armies getting lost. I mean, they lost themselves, bits of themselves, and they also lost the enemy. They had no idea where each other were. They were marching around these huge wastelands of Poland and East Prussia, um, really just looking, looking to see where's the enemy. And there's lots of them wrote in their diaries. The only way you could find out is if you look for the columns of smoke where villages were burning on the horizon. Um, but I've written a lot about what happened on the Eastern Front because um, most people have heard a bit about the retreat from Mons and the Marne and so on, but they know much less about what happened on the Eastern Front. So I've, I've written a lot about that. And I say about these amazing Serbian campaigns um, where the tiny Serbian army absolutely um, smashed the Austrians again and again. And the Habsburg Empire, um, who had started this whole business thinking that a quick war against Serbia was going to be the way out of all its troubles, and by gosh, they didn't like the war they got. Um, the Habsburg Empire was very quickly brought almost to its knees, and if it hadn't been for the Germans stepping in to help them, there's no doubt that the Russians and the Serbs would have um, been in Vienna in about 20 minutes. So by the end of 1914, which of the two sides would you say was in a stronger position? It had become obvious by the end of 1914 that the Germans were not going to get a quick victory, and that meant that all their 
strategic hopes were shattered. Everything they sought um, was based on the idea of speed. And there were bitter recriminations between the German commanders. There was huge anger and huge argument about whose fault it all was that they'd ended up in this mess. But like most countries that go to war, um, having suffered so much and already lost 800,000 casualties and um, suffered so terribly, they were determined they got to have a victory to show for it. So they were determined to plough on. But they did have a lot against them because although the British blockade um, was not very effective for a long time, amazingly, um, British ships continued for the first year to the war carrying supplies into Rotterdam, that was neutral Holland, which ended up in Germany. And um, quite amazing state of affairs, but everybody was so frightened of upsetting the neutrals, and especially mm. upsetting the Americans, that um, nobody dared implement a tight blockade. But nonetheless, the Germans had got severe problems, for instance, horses. Hundreds of thousands of horses killed in the first few months of the war. The British and the French were just able to ship more from Canada, South America, America. The Germans had to take more from the land, and a huge problem. They very quickly, big problems for agriculture. Also big problems um, for their agriculture as they had to feed themselves. And um, a lot of their fertilizer that was vital for their farming was imported, and they couldn't bring that in. So the Germans had very severe strategic problems. But George Orwell wrote in 1946, very memorably, he said, um, the only way to end a war quickly is to lose it. And this is the whole trouble. Everybody realised that they were in a disaster by the end of 1914, but everybody had suffered so much that they were determined that um, they got to have a victory to show for it. And in particular, and I have some sympathy with this, when President Wilson of, a, of the United States proposed uh, that there should be some sort of negotiation and meeting for some sort of uh, compromise deal, the French and the British said, and the Russians went along with this, we can't have any sort of compromise that leaves the, the Germans free to start all this up again three months later. And I, I, one does understand how they felt. They felt having suffered so much um, that s s whatever sort of deal emerged at the end of the war, it had to be a deal that did not allow Germany just to start the whole thing again um, a while later. Um, so everybody was determined on victory at this stage. Um, and the Western Allies, they thought they were in a stronger position because a lot of reinforcements were flowing in from the French and British colonies and from the Empire. And, um, you know, there were the British on top at sea with this huge fleet, much bigger than the German fleet. There were the Russians. All right, they'd taken some terrible defeats, but they were hammering the Austrians. The British and the French thought in the spring of 1915 they might be able to launch some um, wonderful offensives on the Western Front that would produce a decisive result. What they failed to understand then, there was never a quick, easy way. Once, unless one side or the other had cracked completely, there never was an easy way, any idea that if the generals had been cleverer, um, they could have achieved a quick victory. There was no quick victory on offer when the technology of defence was so much more effective, and it, this was already clear, than the technology of attack that if you, in order to attack, you had to charge across an open field in the face of machine guns and artillery, it was fantastically difficult. And one line I don't buy, yes, some, a lot of the generals of the First World War weren't very impressive and certainly not very lovable, but any idea that if they'd been a bit cleverer, they could have done it all easier. There was a basic problem for the Western Allies um, on the Western Front, 
and that was the Germans in the first few months had conquered nearly all of Belgium and a large chunk of France. And the Germans were perfectly happy to sit there indefinitely. Mm. But the French and the British had to get this back in order to win. So the onus was always on the French and the British to do most of the attacking. And this put them in a, in a, in a very nasty hole. And the Germans took a terrible beating in uh, October and November 1914 at Ypres, when they made their last big attempt of 1914 to attack. But after that, they didn't really launch any big attacks in the West until Verdun in 1916. They let the British and the French do most of the attacking, and of course they suffered terribly as a result. I mean, I personally think, I think one of the things that happened in the, in the course of the war, people gradually became so embittered and so appalled by how ghastly the experience was that they just, they just started saying to each other, nothing could be worth this. But how do you get out of it? Um, it's very difficult that people say now, oh, and the poets, a lot of the poets said then, we should have just packed it in. But how do you pack it in unless you just walk away and let the Kaiser have it? And even then, not many people really wanted to do that. And it's so easy to say, well, the statesmen should have found a way out. But the Germans continued to be committed to achieving a victory up to 1918, when the 1914 German Chancellor, Bethmann Hollweg, uh, decided in 1917 that the only sensible way forward was a compromised peace. He was made to resign. Uh, the Ludendorff, who by then was running Germany more or less, although the Kaiser was still nominally in charge, Ludendorff said, we must have victory. And in the face of that, what were the Allies supposed to do? And um, yes, the experience that the Allies endured in France and that every soldier and all those 800,000 British soldiers, yes, it was appalling, but I don't think it was for nothing. I think it was fantastically difficult, uh, once you got into this ghastly mess, uh, to see any way out of it except by a decision on the battlefield. Um, so while, of course, the, the huge sacrifice was dreadful. I don't think it was for nothing. And coming on to that, next year obviously is the centenary yeah. at the start of the war. How do you think modern governments and modern people should mm. mark that occasion? I'm one of several historians uh, who feels very strongly that the government's approach to the centenary so far is a cop-out because the government said we're going to take a non-judgmental approach. We're just going to try and use most of the money they're spending to try and explain to a new generation how awful it was. I and some other much more distinguished historians believe very strongly that what, what we should be trying to do at this centenary is to try to explain to a new generation how and why it all happened and to adopt a much more imaginative approach and to say yes, yes it was unspeakable but it was not for nothing that except in the take, of course, you know, all deaths in all wars are a tragedy in one sense, that I'm not really convinced that any sacrifice in any war is much better or much worse than any other. But at the moment, the British public, I think, has a very deep-rooted belief that the Second World War was the good war, and the First World War was, was the bad war. And I, I think this is too simplistic, that the Second World War was sort of too triumphalist about the Second World War, which God knows ruined Britain. The Americans were the only people who made a profit out of it. Yes, of course, Hitler had to be fought, but gosh, we came out of the war without a great deal to celebrate. But the First World War, again, nobody in their right mind could suggest we should celebrate the centenary, but I do think we could commemorate it in an intelligent way by trying to explain to a new generation how it happened and why the sacrifice in the First World War was just as valid as the sacrifice in the Second. Now, we all think 
oh well, the Second World War wasn't nearly so bad militarily, but actually that was for a reason. And that was because the Russians did most of the dying in the Second World War, whereas uh, British and French troops did a lot, far more of the dying in the First World War. I mean, you know, we suffered um, more than twice the number of casualties in the F First World War, military casualties, suffered in the Second. Um, but that was because the Russians in the Second World War did most of the dying. And it wasn't because our generals were better or more humane in the Second, it's because on the Eastern Front, the Russians had killed 92% of all the Germans who died, whereas the First World War, eventually, the British Army won a victory, a great victory, in August 1918. Now, it was won at such a cost that, again, nobody in their right mind would celebrate it, but you can say, in the end, um, yes, we did something dreadful um, pretty well, and it wasn't nearly as mindless as some people think it was. I mean, it felt that way to those who took part. But you talk to anybody who's been in a really terrible war, and it feels pretty mindless at the yeah. time. No war is fun for anybody but psychopaths. Um, and the idea that the First World War was sort of qualitatively different and worse and belongs to a different moral order from the Second, I don't think is true. Of course one can say, you know, if you've got a, it's almost, uh, only children sort of try and measure different evils, but of course um, Hitler and the Nazis represented a more terrible force than the Germany of the First World War. But if the Germany of the First World War had won, it would have been a, ter a terrible, terrible day for Europe. That was Sir Max Hastings. Catastrophe, Europe Goes to War, 1914, is out now, published by William Collins. And as I mentioned earlier, you can read an article by Max in our November issue, which is currently available in all good newsagents and digitally. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. 
with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Richard III remains one of England's most controversial kings, and he's recently been one of the most talked about following the discovery of his skeleton beneath a car park in Leicester last year. Philippa Langley, who organised and funded the search for the remains, has teamed up with historian Michael Jones to write a new book documenting the project and tackling some of the key issues surrounding the monarch's life. Philippa and Michael spoke to our book's editor, Matt Elton, about the biggest challenges that they faced and about how they hope people will now view Richard. So can you tell me a bit about how you went about producing this book? Well, I think it's, it's been quite a while, hasn't it? Um, yeah. Mike and I first got together in 2002, and I think it was about 2003 that we started having this um, conversation about bringing the real Richard III sort of centre stage. Mm. So I think as this project progressed, uh, it seemed sort of a natural sort of progression in terms of, of writing the book together because of our long, our long years... Talking about Richard III. It was a shared vision, really, to look at Richard in a different way, a fundamentally different way, and it grew from those first meetings. And so, why this king particularly? Why not any other king from British history? Hmm. Well, I think I think for me personally, what what gets me is is this complete disconnect with Richard III, because there's the great debate always with him. And I think people are always fascinated about this, you know, good guy, bad guy. And um, I think that's what really intrigued me as well. Mm. And it's a very short reign, obviously a very controversial one. And it's followed by a different dynasty that, that sought to denigrate him. And I think that we are both fascinated by the real story that might lie behind the man and the reign. Mm. and felt that there was something very different that could still emerge. Okay, can we talk about how you both became involved in the project? Perhaps, Philippa, you could talk about how you first started work on the project. Um, Yeah, I was working as a screenwriter, and I was fascinated about Richard's story. I was fascinated about his life. That's what intrigued me. So I went to Leicester, um, because I thought, if you're writing a film about Richard, the final couple of frames of that film will be his death and uh, went into this particular car park and had um, a pretty powerful experience, an intuitive experience. And I think at that point, um, I then became fascinated about his death. So I'd done, you know, a complete swivel about, from, you know, working on his life to being, wanting to research his death. And that's how it all began for Mm. me. And so when did the decision come that you would start trying to find out where he was buried? Um, pretty much, you know, really quickly, uh, because I wanted to to sort of then start looking into whatever I could in terms of his death, and what that kicked off was then pretty much four years of research, and then after that, three and a half years to get the, the tarmac cut in the car park, so seven and a half years. How, how difficult was it to get that tarmac cut? Ah, wow, it it was a battle. It was an absolute battle. I think you probably have to remember two things. We were in the worst recession in living memory. And I was always working against the River Source story, funnily enough. That is the the black dog that followed me 
throughout this project. That's yeah. the story that his bones have been thrown in yeah. the river. Thrown into the river saw, yes, because nobody thought he would be there. They always thought it's going to be a wild goose chase. So it was convincing them that, um, you know, the project was a viable one. And who did you have to convince? Everybody. <laughs> Everybody. Um, yeah, I mean, I think even particularly in Leicester, the, the story there was very powerful. So um, it was a long road, but eventually I think they recognised that the way I pitched it to them, I said, look, the search is the story. Whether we find him or not, it's a great story anyway, because it's the first ever search for the grave of an anointed king. And I think they got that. Uh, but I think the feeling was overall, you know, we dig the car park, we have a couple of weeks fun and then we will go away. Yeah. And how about you, Michael? At what point did you get involved in, in the project? Well, <clears throat> this is a big project over a very long period of time with a lot of people making big contributions. And I think really my part of the story is very early on when Philip and I got together and our vision was to, to see Richard in this totally different way. You know, as, as a man, as a king. And I think our intuition was to try and find an event that would be as powerful as Shakespeare's portrayal, that would counterpoint it. So our, our hope was we might find something like this so that there'd be a tangible sort of opposite to the Shakespearean picture. And can you talk me through how you both felt when you began to suspect that you had in fact found the site at which he was buried? The research was looking really good. And the research was key and there was a lot of it. Uh, but I think, did we ever realise, really realise we'd found it? I, I think there's a lot, there was a lot of information to give us that backup, but the belief still wasn't there in terms of the academic community. Uh, it really was an uphill struggle. But I think we just had to say, look, the, the test is let's just cut the tarmac and see, you know. Um, so, yeah, even when we cut the tarmac, a lot of the, the, the people are supporting us. It was, it was a long shot. How about you, Michael? Well, <clears throat> I was really um, a bystander for, for the actual events. I was, I was doing something else, but in a way, from that position, it was tremendously exciting. It, it, was, it was almost as if I, I was watching something extraordinary unfold. And uh, I remember just the feeling of awe and excitement as those remains appeared. It was an incredible moment. Just a quick question about the book. Um, is the book written by both of you? Did you both get involved in writing it? Because it's from the point, you know, I comes across quite a lot in the book. Were you both involved in kind of actually writing it or how did that work? Yes, I, um, we decided that we felt one of the most powerful stories we could tell would be to tell Richard's story intercut with the story of the search for his grave. Because I think when we were discussing it, we thought, let's give something that, um, you know, if the public are interested in this particular story, it's sort of a one-stop um, Richard III place, really. Yes. Because, yes, it would be great to tell the story about the dig, but if it was out of context with who was the man. Uh, so we just felt, yeah, doing sort of, you know, chapter on Richard, chapter on dig, it might give it a really nice momentum and get people not only into Richard's story, but let them live 
the story of the search for his grave, um, you know, day by day. Mm. And Philippa, you talk a lot in the book about instinct. How much of a role do you think that played in getting the project off the ground and, in fact, finding Richard? I think it was key because it was the catalyst. And for me, it was the driver. But I think um, it then set off the four years of research and the three and a half year battle. But I think without that catalyst, without that driver, would I have been so driven? Probably not. So yeah, it was important. There's a story in the book about how you cross the car park and you get this strange feeling. Perhaps you could just talk us through that a little bit. Um, yeah, it was just an intuitive feeling and it was quite powerful and I absolutely felt that I was walking on his grave. And I think that is what led me to, I needed to disprove it after that. I needed to go in search, to cut the car park and find out what all that feeling was about and if he really was there. Is it strange to you now that that initial gut instinct has been borne out, has been proved in a sense correct? Um, I suppose it does feel strange now that you know we've discovered what we've discovered. But again, it was my driver, and it absolutely drove me to do what I had to do. So uh, the fact that it all turned out to be correct and we found him in that exact place, I don't know, maybe it was just meant to be. You mentioned in the book how much of a roller coaster, if you like, the dig was. Could you um, just describe to me those days in September last year where you began to find the floor of the Church of the Grey Friars? Um, at what point did you, you know, start to suspect that it was the site? I think, strangely, um, the archaeologists, I think, because we were getting to the, the medieval layer relatively quickly, they were sure we were in the Grey Friars precinct quite early on. But as you can imagine, the precinct is, is an awfully big area, so where is the church within this huge area? And it took a long time to find the church. Uh, the Victorians had done a brilliant job of completely obliterating the whole sort of northern end of Trench One, which is where um, my research had said uh, the church would be. So uh, I think once we eventually found the church, it was a bit of a sigh of relief, but then we needed to know where in the church we were. And again, that was another roller coaster that began from that point. How did you go about identifying where in the church he, he was? We knew from the historical sources that he was buried in the choir. And we knew from Trench 3 that it looked like we had found the east end of the church. But what initially kicked off in terms of the dig was it looked like we'd found the choir in Trench 3, not in Trench 1. And it was only after a lot of archaeological work that they finally realised that no, the actual choir was, was towards Trench 1. Did you ever have any doubts during the days of the dig that it wasn't in fact going to yield any results? For me, no, <laughs> because we found the leg bones on the very first day and we found them in the exact place that I wanted them to be and needed them to be. And of course we found them completely out of context. So for me, I always had that, that going on in the back of my mind. I was always coming back to those leg bones. But for the archaeologists, understandably, they had to understand the entire site before they could then say what these leg bones were, because when they were discovered, we didn't even know if they were medieval. How about you, Michael? Did you have any worries? 
Well, <clears throat> the excitement I felt was it's him. And uh, I, I wasn't faced with the, the minutiae, which can throw up all sorts of different issues. But I just had this very strong instinct, observing from a distance, that he'd been found. How did you both feel when you discovered that the skeleton was in fact curved? That was a big moment for me, a huge moment, because I'd spent so long researching Richard III, and um, he was very physically able. So to be told, you know, it's such an appropriate word, but we don't have another word, but to be told that he was hunchbacked didn't fit at all with everything that I knew about the man. Um, you know, but the specialists were telling me that he was, and actually when you looked into the grave, you could see that he was hunched. So the evidence was staring me right in the face. What it did for me, though, was... It threw me, absolutely threw me, because for me it said, you know, if he is the hunchbacked king that Shakespeare had portrayed, I just felt that all the work that we had tried to do in terms of, um, you know, looking at the real Richard, I just thought it's going to set us back completely because so, so many historians are tied to you know, the Tudor story, the Tudor propaganda, and I just thought, we're never going to get to the real man. So that really threw me, because I couldn't understand how someone with kyphosis could fight on a battlefield, you know, because the head is sort of pushed forward and down. And, you know, when you wear a helmet, you've got this much vision. So if your head is pushed forward and down, and you've got this much vision... It just didn't work. So I think when you see the impact it had on me, that was what was going through my head. Um, it was trying to sort of square the circle, if you like. How about you, Michael? Did you? Well, <clears throat> I found it a very moving moment. Um, Richard's condition was used as a judgment in Shakespeare and also by the Judas. So it was... It was seen as a deformity, and that deformity physically mirrored a deformity of the mind. And we, in modern times, would use words like disability, and in this case, more importantly, condition. So for me, rather than the sense of moral judgment, I, I felt this profound sense of sympathy. Uh, I, I didn't see a deformed or evil individual. I saw a person under an oppressive weight and um, this immediately got me thinking about moments in his life and career. You both touched on their Tudor propaganda. Do you feel that um, the public, now that they know that he did in fact have a curved spine, do you think that they are likely to be sympathetic towards Richard or do you think it has confirmed those historians who have pin that is the major feature of his personality, if you like. I, th I know, I think it's done the exact opposite. I think it's shown people very clearly that the best propaganda is you take a small kernel of truth and you exaggerate it. And I think people have worked out very quickly that what the Tudors did was they exaggerated um, Richard. And I think what we're now really interested in doing is taking the mythology that's around Richard that his remains have now shown us to be mythology, 
and working that back into his story to, um, to reassess him completely. But I think the public, you know, scoliosis is a condition that I think most of us know somebody who has scoliosis. I do. The three of my friends have got scoliosis. It makes him more human somehow. Um, and I think it also makes his story all the more credible, doesn't yeah. it? Why do you think the Tudor propaganda has been so pervasive? Why do you think it's stayed intact in a way that kind of the reputations of other kings have changed over time? Well, the Tudors were on the throne for a very long time. Uh, if we compare Richard's reign, which was just over two years, with the Tudor dynasty that lasted well over a hundred years, they had a long time to perfect their story. You know, we say that history is told by the winners, and these winners were around for a very long time. And one of the problems in, always in, get, in getting a real sense of Richard was his reign was so short, and the sources are limited, partly because the reign was short, and partly because the Tudors did a pretty good job in destroying or getting rid or repressing sources that were positive to Richard. So there is a struggle in getting through this Tudor view of Richard to the real man. Are there any other sources other than Shakespeare that you think have been particularly key in establishing this, if you like, distorted view in your opinion? Well, the one I, the one I would focus on is Thomas More's History of Richard III, which was brought out early in the reign of Henry VIII. And because it's very cleverly written, very well written from a dramatic point of view, it's had a lot of influence on people, and it certainly influenced Shakespeare. And it's in Moore, for example, that for the first time we find ingredients of the Shakespearean Richard, that he was the architect, for example, of his brother Clarence's death. And, and no contemporary or near-contemporary source, even sources in Henry VII's reign, said that. So Thomas More really had a big impact on the hostile portrayal of Richard. Okay. I'd agree with that totally. Thomas More, yeah. So if we were to peel away all this, these untruths and all these kind of lies about him, what sense do we get of his personality? Well, interestingly, I, I think, and, and a lot of research has been done on, on Richard's life, that we, we do get a very strong sense of him as a person. And one of the problems has been that the sense of him, that he was very courageous, he was very, very brave, he was a brave fighter, he, he was brave full stop. Uh, and even his most bitter critics paid him credit for the way he fought and died at Bosworth. So he was very brave, he was very loyal. Uh, he had a strong interest in justice, and he was very pious. And he could also, on occasions, be ruthless. Uh, the thing I'd like to say about the ruthlessness is that we, in the 21st century, can see that sometimes as a character flaw. In the 15th, it was a prerequisite for political survival, particularly in the Wars of the Roses. So all those things, I think, come across very strongly about the real man. Philippa, do you, do you find that your role in the Richard III Society makes it harder to persuade people that you're coming from a neutral viewpoint, that you genuinely are interested in finding out the truth rather than proving a particular point of view? Um, no, 
I, I don't think so. I mean, would I say that I'm neutral? I wouldn't say actually that I'm, I'm neutral because I do believe that Richard has been maligned and I do believe his reputation has been pretty much dragged through the mire for 500 years. But I think in, in terms of the Richard III Society, um, you know, they're the oldest and largest historical society in the world and they have a, a mission statement, you know, which says that the traditional accounts of Richard III are not supported by the facts nor reasonably tenable. And I have to say that I concur with that mission statement 100%. I agree with that. Uh, so I, I would say that my position is I need to have an open mind. As a screenwriter, I can't go in there thinking he's a saint. I can't do that because I'm looking for the human being. You know, we're all complex. We're all, um, you know, conflicted, flawed. That's how we are. That's that's the human condition. So what I'm looking for in Richard is is what makes his human condition. Talking about your involvement in the project, of course, the Channel Four program that came out earlier this year. Did you find it strange to be the focus of such publicity? Uh. Yeah, it was difficult. It was like being in the eye of a storm. But, you know, I was there to do this project, to, to look for Richard's grave and, you know, to search for the real Richard. So, you know, it was a case of just getting on and doing it. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it was unexpected, I think, really unexpected. Were there any details of either the dig on a daily basis or of the discovery that weren't covered in the TV programme that you would have liked to have? Being explored. I th I think um, the problem was we had sixty hours of footage and we had to get it into like one hour twenty minutes. So you can imagine how much ended up on the cutting room floor. There's a lot that um, wasn't covered, but we've covered it in the book. So I'm hoping that now that we've been able to write down the story of the discovery, um, everyone will be able to read about it. What do you hope that the book will add to the? about ideas around Richard that hasn't been covered in the TV programme or elsewhere? Well, I think in terms of the dig, I want people to, to get a sense of what the journey was like for everyone involved in that project, because you're going to live it by reading the book. But I think what we also decided to do was, you know, as a screenwriter, you walk a thousand miles in someone's shoes. And I think with bringing Mike in to give Richard's story, we wanted them to, you know, have a sense of Richard, walk a thousand miles in his shoes, but then whilst doing that, you know, walk a couple of hundred in mine as well to get the full picture. How about you, Michael? <clears throat> yeah, one of the things that very powerfully emerges from the discovery of Richard's remains is how he fought and died at Bosworth. And from a historian's point of view, this was an incredibly dramatic moment, a, a moment that even his fiercest critics stopped, paused, and said the way he fought was incredible. And a lot for me could be built around that in the book, because that, that charge where he charged his opponent and then how, how he, he suffered in those final terrible moments were, were a core to telling his story in a different way, uh, a way that hopefully makes sense of contradictions that haven't been resolved before and gives the power and drive to his life, his reign and his death. 
Funnily enough, for me, one of the most powerful sections in the book is the Bosworth section that Mike writes. For me, it's, it's Bosworth being told in a way that it hasn't been told before, and it's needed to be told like this. And I hope, I hope the readers will enjoy it. Fantastic. You touched actually earlier about um, how we need to try to think of Richard from the point of view of a 15th century person rather than a 21st century one, which is something that Leander Delisle um, picks up in an October issue with relation to the princes in the tower. This is an issue that in the book you talk about how it divided you in some sense. Where do you both stand on the truth behind that whole incident? I, I think it would be useful, first of all, to say where we agree. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that unites us is that we both believe that Richard and his claim to the throne, that Richard had a claim to the throne that was later suppressed by the Tudors, um, vigorously suppressed, though copies did emerge, called the Tudulus Regius, that we both agreed that Richard felt that claim was genuine, that it wasn't manufactured, and many historians and many other, other people will disagree with that, but one of our common grounds was that he had a viable claim that he believed in, and certainly quite a substantial number of other people did too. And that's important because it means that he, it was not necessary for him to kill the princes, the sons of Edward IV, to take the throne. So that was our common ground. And another piece of common ground was that our mutual belief in terms of our understanding of his personality was that this was a course of action that he would only take if he did do it with the utmost reluctance and regret. So that was our common ground, and that puts us in a different camp from a lot of historians and a lot of people, but we felt that was good. So that was the agreement. And what we disagreed on was the fact that I felt that cruel necessity and an attempt to rescue or remove the princes from the tower early on in Richard's reign may have, because the evidence is not conclusive, it's at best suggestive, may have forced Richard's hand. In other words, the survival of his dynasty was at stake. And Philippa disagreed, and she felt that uh, he wouldn't have done that. Uh, our belief was and is that the debate was very healthy, it was very honest, because we don't know what happened. And we believe that by debating it, and we don't think this has been done before, it will, it will be interesting to readers and push the debate onwards. And that's what really needs to happen. We need to keep discussing this. And hopefully, more evidence may come to light, one way or the other. Talking about evidence, do you think that we should test the remains found in the tower? I, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I think now that we've found Richard's remains, I think that that is probably something at some point, if, it's a, if the opportunity is there, that yes, we probably do need to do. Yeah. On the subject of remains, um, where do you both stand on the subject of where they should be buried? Well, Which of the third remains, that is? I think we're both sort of of the opinion that we just have to let the due process of law take place. And uh, I think the one thing that we we definitely agree on is that Richard needs to be buried with decency and dignity and with honour because in 1485 we now know that he wasn't given any of that and I think it's important now in our modern times that we make a powerful statement and then by reburying him in this way we're saying that you know we recognise history we recognise what went on in the past but we're not repeating it 
What most surprised you both in the course of writing this book and of the project more generally? I think probably some of the research that came out. I think, for me, um, one of the things about this project um, that really hit home was, was some of the mythology we've been able to, to blow. I mean, for instance, we now know that he wasn't dug up at the dissolution, you know, so it's myth gone. We know that he wasn't carried through the streets by a jeering crowd, you know, myth too gone. We know that his body wasn't thrown into the river Saul, another myth gone. We know that he didn't have a withered arm. We know that he didn't have kyphosis, he wasn't hunchbacked. We know that his head didn't crack Bow Bridge when he was slung over the horse coming back into Leicester. You know, so there's half a dozen myths that have been shattered already by this project. And I think what, what I would like is that the project shows people the mythology, the sort of stories that grow up around Richard that become his history. Now, when I was doing this project, they said, you'll never find him, he's in the River Saw, it's a wild goose chase. So I would really like a wholesale reassessment of Richard, taking on board what his remains have shown us. I mean, um, and it's quite powerful what they have shown us already. I know lots of people have said that finding his remains is meaningless. I don't think that's the case because of this. And I think we need to, to go back into Richard's story and think, okay, if all of this was mythology, what else is mythology? It gives us a vital tangibility to his life. There's something extraordinarily powerful in making a connection again with his physical remains, getting a sense of what his face might have been like, particularly with so much distortion. But for me, the, the journey of writing this book, because this book is two journeys, it, it's the search for the remains and it's the search for the real Richard. So in a sense, the remains were buried, and so was the real Richard buried under a mound of Tudor propaganda. And as a historian who you know, specialized in the 15th century, it became more and more clear to me that the driver in the story was that Richard had a cause that he believed in. Um, my own belief, and it, and it was a surprise to me, was that I was writing the book, I came to see that Richard really believed in his claim to the throne. And when I grasped that, a lot of other things really fell into place. The new, and I think very exciting, archival discoveries in the book that show Richard in a different light. But the interpretation evolved as well. But the final thing I think I would say, because we've talked about burial, but there's also another burial, which is a burial of this endless debate over whether he was bad or good. And, and what I believe the book shows is that he was a complicated man, an extraordinary man who could also be politically ruthless, but he was a charismatic man and his story is very compelling. And our hope is that instead of seeing him either as dark or white, people will come to get a view of a real man living in a very, very violent and turbulent period of our history. And I think in, in terms of you know, the political ruthlessness, he could also be incredibly politically naive, um, you know, to the point where um, you know, really any other 
leader at that time would have executed an awful lot of people, but Richard didn't. He was incredibly lenient. And I, and I think there's a lot in that, in his story. Complexity. Which, yeah, complexity, which if he had been a little bit more ruthless with certain people, he might not have had to have fought Bosworth. And I think that's an interesting thing that you can find when you, when you read the book, is the complex nature that Richard had. And for yes. me as a, as a screenwriter, that, that's what fascinates me. One of, one of our themes is, is comparing him with the Tudors who, who had the monopoly over the historical view of him and showing that in, in many important in, instances the Tudors were much more ruthless than Richard. So we're not saying he's some saint, but we're saying we have to understand the context of the times and putting him back in the context of the times is the parallel story to putting him back in a burial place with due reverence. So these are the two themes and echoes in the book. That was Philippa Langley and Michael Jones talking about the discovery of the remains of Richard III. Their new book, The King's Grave, is out now, published by John Murray. And Matt's interview with Philippa and Michael also appears in our November issue, which is on sale now. Well, that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we might well read your message out in a future episode. One listener who got in touch recently was Lee Kane. Lee writes, Hello, I just want to take a minute to say how much I love the podcast. I'm especially enjoying the story with Richard Bradley. It is very interesting, but best of all is the glorious sound of the falling rain, my very favourite background music. Thank you for all the hours of enjoyment while I take my walks in northern Michigan through the sun, rain and snow. Thanks for that, Lee. And the episode Lee's referring to was broadcast on the 26th of September and is still available to download, as indeed are all our previous podcasts dating back to 2007. And as well as email, you can also keep in touch with us on social media. You can follow us on Twitter at History Extra and our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash History Extra. And don't forget, you can visit our website, historyextra.com, where you'll find history news, history blogs, image galleries, quizzes and more. Next week, we'll be talking about ancient Greek theatre with Michael Scott and taking a trip around a 19th century prison. Do join us for that. The History Extra podcast was recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.